I would love to have you take a Bible if you have one near you or find it on an app if that's more handy for you. And then the study notes inside your bulletin will be a help to you as well as we step into our time in God's Word. Um, First, a a personal comment, just so you have some idea um, on this one area. This morning, I will be leaving right between sermon and stepping into communion. Um, Pastor Ben will come back up and lead that part, but when I disappear, Kathy and I are going to some meetings that we're supposed to be at and need to get on an airplane pretty quick. So, uh, wish you all the best, but when I leave, I'm gone, all right? So send me an email if you need to, but uh, I'll be out. Years ago, when I was young, growing up in Sunday school classes, just like we have here, I learned a song that I suspect many of you know uh, as well from those days, and it went something like this, and I'll just say it, not sing it. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, The wise man built his house upon... The rock, okay? And then there was verse 2. I don't think we sing it because we would have to say the wise person, and it doesn't rhyme. But then we sang the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the house, come on now, came a-tumbling down, and the house on the sand went splat or smash or something like that. And of course, as we sang that as kids in a class, routinely we had a, a teacher or an adult or somebody who would say, and kids, you know that's, that's not talking about construction. It's talking about your life. Uh, If you build your house on the rock, that's a good thing. If you build your house on shifting sand, that's a bad thing. They would help us understand that. Now, I mention that because you'll be needing to make a similar shift in our study this morning. Here's what I mean by that. We're working our way through the book of Isaiah, of course, and we're, we're taking a big section today. Usually not this big, but it, we are. Six chapters together And part of the problem that's being addressed, as we'll explain more in a few minutes, is there's a foreign army attacking people. It's the Assyrians back in the day. They're coming for you. Now, for me personally, I've never been in a position where foreign armies were attacking me. I've never had Assyrians chasing me. So it'd be possible to come to this text and say, these people are afraid of the Assyrians. I don't know any Assyrians. What does this have to do with me? And it has a lot to do with you, of course. So I'm just kind of telling you this ahead of time. Um, We may not have Assyrians attacking us. We have other things that assault us. We have other enemies of our soul or our life, things that, that threaten our life, maybe not physically, but those things that give us life, threaten our security, bring fears, um, endanger our, our sense of well-being, our happiness in life. We have other enemies, some things external, Sometimes there are things internal to us, things we struggle with. Uh, We may not have literal Assyrians, but we have unwanted and unwelcome things that assault us in other ways. So I want you to be ready to make that shift along the way as we go. But I want to pray for us that God will help us with this. We need his help. Uh, The Bible is not just some book that somebody wrote. It's the the living and uh, breathing word of God to us, inerrant, infallible, and for us today. So I want to pray that God will help us here, and we'll step into our time in God's word. Father, thank you so much for these dear people, others who have joined us throughout the morning or online, elsewhere around the world. We're so grateful. We get to open the word of God together and here invite you, the living God who is and who is among us by the Spirit of God. Just help us. Help us here. You know the things we deal with. 
And I thank you that you know every person who's walked in the door today. Whatever, whatever the challenges or the problems or the fears or concerns, you see them all, and you address those things. You care about them. You care about us. So help us now as we look at this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned already we're working our way through the book of Isaiah. We routinely preach that way, of course, meaning we uh, work through various Bible books, Old Testament or New Testament, and we talk about what they meant then and what they mean to us today. And so we do that sometimes in bigger sections or smaller sections And Isaiah, sometimes called the fifth gospel by some, um, but there's so much here that points us to Christ. Uh, on your sermon notes, there's a review section. I'll invite you to look at that. Uh, the part that calls today's text, I'd like to say a couple things right out of this, all right? So first of all, the, the six chapters that we're looking at, plus a couple more, are often called the book of woes, W-O-E-S, not like stopping a horse, but the book of woes, because of the, the number of times that, and I call it a funeral word, because it, it means, it, it includes sorrow, it's a, it's a sad word. It's like, you're in trouble. I mentioned the New Living Translation says, what sorrow awaits. Now, I use the ESV translation, and it, it uses the word awe, A-H. And I'm not real, I don't think that really does it. It doesn't say woe too much. Sometimes we say awe about a birthday cake. Ah, fireworks, ah. And it doesn't mean that happy awe. This is, this is woe to you. This is a head shaking, oh no. So when, I, when we read the text as we will. I want you to hear that. Oh, no. Uh, what sorrow awaits is you, is you see that repeated, and it's repeated throughout this section. So the book of woes is a fit, is a fit uh, title for those, uh, this section of the book of Isaiah. Now, again, I don't always do this, but I want to give you the main point right up front. So if you kind of doze off or think about other things, uh, here you'll get it. All right, the main point of this section today is this, people of God, hope in God. Find your hope in him. Trust him deeply and fully. Do not trust in foreign armies. And I could put quotes on that. It isn't foreign armies you're looking to trust. It's anything other than him. Don't trust in those other things for ultimate protection. Do not seek life in things that cannot give it. People do this a lot. I'm looking for life and it didn't do it. There's still something missing and I know it. So don't seek life in things that cannot give it, and then trust in, hope in, find rest in God alone. I think trust, hope, and find rest, those are equivalent terms in the Bible, okay? So find rest in, trust in, hope in God alone. All right, so I want to jump right in. You'll see as you look at the layout on the sermon notes, those are important to you uh, as we move along. I've put these, these six chapters under three headings, two chapters apiece, which is how I think the text kind of flows, all right? So it works this way. So my first section then, chapters 28 to 29, fit under the heading, judgment begins with God's people. I think it does. So I want to read then for us the first eight verses of chapter 28, and we'll talk about it and uh, see what's here. So judgment begins with God's people. What's going on here? All right, so uh, Isaiah 28, 1, awe or woe, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Well, that doesn't sound happy. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he cast down to the earth with his hand. He's talking about the Assyrian army as being sent by God to 
to smack them. Well, that's what's on the way. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of his glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They struggle or stagger from strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left, and we will stop there. Wow, that's rather graphic, isn't it? Well, that's coffee, by the way. Just wanted to point that out. So what's going on in the text here? What's going on in the text? Well, let me just remind you of the picture that's taking place. We're at about 750 years before Christ. Uh, This book is named for a guy named Isaiah, who is writing, speaking for God. And at the time, the nation of Israel, which is kind of the center of all of this, uh, is is divided in half. They've had a civil war, and the north and the south have split in their case. They didn't reunify like our country. So the north is most of them. There's 10 groups up there, two in the south. And the Assyrian army is coming in, and they're just getting ready to smack the folks up north, and then they're going to go south. And at this point in the text, we don't know how that's going to go, okay? We'll find out soon, but at the, at the moment, you don't know yet. So the Assyrian army, they're the big bad boys of the world, the big bullies, and they're coming. And so Ephraim, when it's mentioned in verse 1, that's one of the groups up north, one of the tribes of Israel, okay? So sometimes that group is called Israel, or it can be called by that influential uh, name, Ephraim, which was part of that. So that's why it's talking about Ephraim, north and then the, the Assyrians are going to go south. So it's, it, it, you know, man, I think about things on the world scene today when there are foreign armies coming for you and you're the little guy, it gives you pause. You think, man, they're going to eat us up. Well, indeed. So what do you do about that? Uh, what happened in our country in the immediate days after 9-11? Well, a lot of things, of course. But one thing in particular that I remember, a lot, of people, a lot more people went to church then for a few weeks. So what do you do? And may I shift it from armies to you, to us. When, when those things, those Assyrians, but not the armies, when those problems come to you, the challenges, whether it's people or problems or relationships or financial issues or struggles in you, when those come, what do you do? What do you do? That's the moment. That's the moment we're at, okay? And in this text, as I read it, you see what these folks were doing. Oh, boy. So verse 1, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Okay, I'm starting to pick it up. Verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Okay, and then, man, we're going to come up to verse 7, and here we go. What are they doing? Well, we're masking a problem, aren't we? Now, you could take this text and just say, well, just don't misuse alcohol. That's the point of the text. It isn't really the point of the text. It's really not the point. The point is, problems are coming. What do you do? In this case, they ran to alcohol. Let me just, I just want to forget it. Well, that doesn't fix your problem, does it? 
It may not be alcohol. It might be any number of other things people do to mask problems, to hide their head in the sand, stay busy. It might not be alcohol at all. Alcohol is only one thing here. So you can mispreach this text and just spank everybody for misusing alcohol, and you miss the point. All right? So, so in this case now, that is what they were doing. And in fact, it isn't just the people who were misusing alcohol. You come down to verse 7 as I read it. Do you see this? The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. So even like religious leaders, they're hammered too. Well, that would give you pause. Man, that's, that's not okay. So people, leaders are hiding their heads in the sand. The Assyrians are coming. We have no hope. Let's just eat, drink, and marry. Tomorrow we will die. Now, under this heading, there are some bullet points I want to comment on. I mentioned in the first section there, of course, so just some things textually for you to look at. If you read all six of these chapters in preparation for your community groups this week, many of you are in those, you might read all six of these chapters in their entirety, and you'll notice a contrast, a play back and forth between the struggle of today and a better future that God continues to speak about. So you'll see that back and forth. But then, of course, uh, we step right into second bullet point and down to the third uh, the misuse of alcohol, the leaders, even the leaders. Now, I, I want to make a comment on verse 7 that really struck me as I read it. And I want to draw a difference here for you who are Bible study aficionados, okay? A difference here between interpretation and application. In other words, what does the text, what did the text mean then? What did it mean? And what does it mean to me? There's a difference between the two in our Bible study methods, Okay. So in verse 7, you find this. It says in the middle, the priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. Isn't that an interesting phrase? They're swallowed by wine. Well, interpreting that, you look at the current situation, the prophets and priests and so on, people misusing wine and say, that wasn't good. That's what Isaiah is addressing in that day. But I think about that phrase from an applicational way as well, they're swallowed by wine. And I am quickly caught by how not just alcohol, but any addictive behavior does this. That is, you start by swallowing the wine. It, it doesn't say that. They swallowed the wine. It, doesn't, it says they were swallowed by it. You start by swallowing, and again, it's not about the wine. You swallow it, and before long, it has swallowed you. You ever had that experience? And it's, again, the point is not alcohol, though that's a fit illustration of it. I, I stepped into this a bit, and before long, it owned me. It might be something entirely good that before long went from being entirely good to owning you, to being a master. Now, certainly addictive behaviors fit here, whether it's alcohol or some other types of, of substances, or whether it's something you go to or look at how quickly you take a taste and before long it owns your soul. And if you don't know about that personally, I'd bet a lot of money, although that will get you in trouble too. (laughs) Wow. I would think that you probably know somebody (laughs) for whom exactly that has happened. They started off saying, oh, this is fine, this is fine, this is fine. And before long, that thing had them by the throat. Okay, I I just think that's an interesting phrase. They are swallowed by wine. Wow, boy. 
Now, there's another play on words here, and I like to just notice the, 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 the artistic writing of Isaiah the prophet speaking for God. In verse 1, it references this crown element, the proud crown. What is that? It says it again in verse 3, the proud crown. But it's described as fading flowers in verse 1 and fading flowers again in verse 4, whatever this thing is. Now, you're familiar with New Testament times. We think of the Greeks and the, the, the Olympic Games and the, the little laurel wreath that was given to a winner. You understand? In the early Olympic Games, they didn't get the, 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 you know, the medals of gold and silver and so on. But a, 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 a wreath of some sort that was placed on the victor's head. And you wanted that. That was pretty cool. You'd walk around. But guess what? If it's got flowers on it, what happens? It fades. It doesn't last. So you won something. Congratulations. And take great pride in it. It's life-giving. Look at me. I'm somebody. And it's, it's going to get crushed. Whatever that was. It's making you proud. Making you beautiful. Giving meaning to your life. Making you, giving you, giving you validation. Verse 1, that fading flower of its glorious beauty on the head. Wow. Those that are overcome with wine, it's not looking good. Verses 3 and 4, it's going to be trampled underfoot. Man. But look at then at verse 5. In contrast to those fading crowns, here's another one. In that day, which is that future-looking or eschatological, if you have that word in your vocabulary, that future day, yet future to us, eschatological day when the Lord of hosts, he'll be a crown of glory. You want true beauty? You want beauty that lasts? You want meaning that lasts? Well, what are you looking around in the wrong places for? That'll never do it. You know, there's a song, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places. People look for meaning in all the wrong places too. Validation, life. Now I'm really living. We look in the wrong places for this. And here, there's a play on this, a proud crown. You're walking tall, aren't you? With something that'll never satisfy. It's going to get stepped on. Just wait. Just wait. But instead, in contrast, in that day, there's that phrase we've commented on numerous times. It's all the way through the book of Isaiah. The day, the day of the Lord, New Testament. The Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory. He will be a source of true joy. Now, I'm going to the other side of your page, fourth bullet point here, all right? Because I want to go to chapter 29. Some of these earlier sections, a little longer. Some of the latter ones, a little shorter as we'll move through them. You come to chapter 29, which is still part of this section of looking at judgment beginning with God's people. And I want to read the first few verses of 29 and then down to verses 9 to 13, all right? So Isaiah says, O Ariel, Ariel, and by the way, that's a, a, a name that stands for Jerusalem, which you see in the next line, means Lion of God, El, you see as if you understand little pieces of Hebrew uh, phraseology, Ariel, the L part is from Elohim, a name for God. Oh, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet, God says, I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, and I will camp against you all around. And I, who's doing this? Well, the Assyrians, but God says, I'm doing this. I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. From the dust your speech shall whisper. He's talking about Jerusalem. He said, you're going to get squashed, and I'm going to do it. Can you imagine, God says. Discipline from the hand of God, and he's going to tell us why. Now, verse 9 He says, astonish yourself and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk 
but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. It's talking about an invasion here. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. They give the book to one who can't read and say, read this. And he says, I can't read. In other words, they can't hear a word from God. It's closed. Okay? And the Lord said, here's why, verse 13. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. From your New Testament studies, if you're familiar with the New Testament, that will sound vaguely familiar because it's quoted numerous times by Jesus himself in, in talking about the people to whom he was speaking at the time. You, you, you're doing these religious things and your hearts are a mile away. Congratulations. And it's not good. Interestingly, of course, what was accused, what they were accused of back then is often the case for God's people or for religious people all through the world at all times. How many times is it that people look at those who worship at a house of worship and they say, you know what? You guys go and you sing your songs and look all pretty and all that. But I don't see it the rest of the week. That's what verse 13 is about. That's the point. Except it's God saying it. You draw near with your lips, honor me. Draw near with your mouth, honor me with your lips. Your hearts are far away. You're going through some motions, trying to be all religious. And God doesn't give medals for that, just being all religious. Now, interesting, I put here on your study notes, Jerusalem itself, of course, is supposed to be the worldwide center for the worship of the true God at the time, characterized by false worship. And I mentioned God is never pleased with people who go through the motions of religious behavior when the truth and love of God are absent. And I I, I quote a guy here who's done a lot of study in Isaiah where he says, these are not acts of worship, but attempts at manipulation. Isn't that interesting? What does he mean by that? Do people try to manipulate God? Well, yes, often with good religious behavior. So like somebody loses a job and they say something like, well, God, I've been going to church for six months straight. How could I lose my job? As though by going to church for six months straight or whatever, enter good phrase, you know, your good stuff here, that now God owes you something. How about that? Um, My life's got a problem. I'm going to go to church. Well, that's good. Turn your heart back to the Lord. But if, if you're going to church thinking that because you went to church or prayed a little more, God's going to say, well, you're a good boy. You're a good girl. I'll fix that problem for you. Like we're manipulating God to give us stuff. And may I just say back then and today, that's never the way the deal works. We don't just go through the motions of stuff to hopefully have God like us enough to give us stuff. What is that? It's called witchcraft in other settings. It's, it's what people do around the world in all kinds of false religions. They try to manipulate the God or the gods, put a few nickels here and there, walking down a street side shrine, put a few coins here, a few coins, to try to keep the gods happy with us. And sometimes that falls right into a Christian church. We get all excited about the wrong things. Look what I'm doing, God. Look all I'm doing for you. You should bless me, shouldn't you? Take care of my stuff. Give me some money. Make me secure. Let me be happy. Is that all? Is that too much to ask? Attempts to manipulate God. And you know the thing is God sees all the way through it, Right? 
Uh, this people draws near with their mouth, honors me with their lips. He says, your hearts are far from me. So that's a thing to ask ourselves, isn't it? In my doing of religious things, showing up at church, singing songs, playing good music on the radio, there, not even any rock and roll or something. Yeah, <laughs> God will give me good things. Oh, really? Oh, really? No, God is not a God to be manipulated. I don't think so. Now, I mentioned here some of the verses we have moved by and just want to invite you as you prepare again for your groups this week, um, just notice the New Testament use of the old. And here are a few that I've given you. Now, I want to go to chapters 30 and 31 for just a few moments and see this, this, the rest of this cycle. So judgment begins with God's people. It's not working so well. They're trying to forget their problems. And I want to go into that next section. Sometimes God's people seek other saviors. I'm looking at 30 and 31 here. Sometimes God's people seek other saviors. Man, this is important. So I begin at chapter 30, uh, verses 1, 2, 3, and then 31, and I'm just going to read verse 1 there. So God says to Isaiah, Ah, stubborn children, or woe to you, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt, watch this phrase, without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. That's an important phrase we'll comment on later, to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, show the protection of Pharaoh. Turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Chapter 31, verse 1, similarly, and it continues on that vein, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Okay, what's going on here? Well, God's people are pursuing another means of help other than God. So the foreign army is coming. People see the danger of it, whatever that foreign army is. And instead of saying, God, a little help here and seeking him, Right away, they're saying, boy, what do we do to get out of this mess? Let me think. What should I do to get out of this mess? I know I'll go to them for help. And God is saying, hey, over here, I mean, I'm ready to help you. I'm ready to be a part of your life. And right away, God's people go to Egypt. What's the deal with Egypt? Well, let me just tell you a couple things. Egypt at the time was looked to as kind of a world leader. I mean, by this time, historically, the pyramids were already there. You know that? The Sphinx was already there. So we know already they can do advanced math. Huh? But the text calls out a couple of other things. This business about um, trusting chariots and horsemen. You and I read that and say, I don't trust chariots and horsemen. Well, here's the thing. Chariots and horsemen were the latest gadgets in military sophistication. Okay. So if you were a, a country with a whole bunch of army people and here you come marching along with your swords and spears, and if the enemy has chariots, those were like the tanks in their day. So you line up a whole row of those cool horses and you put some guys on the back with swords and they come flying at you really fast. And before you can do anything to defend yourself, they're riding right through your ranks and picking you off and it's a bloodbath. So chariots were an example of like, they've got chariots, no kidding. Whoa, whoa. Watch out for them. Horsemen, cavalry was in its infancy. The whole idea of putting a whole bunch of soldiers on horses, big old battle horses, 
They're going to come for you. And here you are looking up, trying to get them, and they're going to get you first. So this is an attempt to find the latest and best and coolest approach other than God. Without, and use a term without meaning more by it than I'm intending. They had the latest in military science. And somebody came along and said, well, you should trust their military science to, to save the day. And off they went. Well, God's people were seeking other saviors. And folks, we do the same thing. Except it's not chariots and horsemen. Even today, we, we seek life. You know, really live from all kinds of places, whether it's experiences or possessions or people. I finally found somebody. I'm finally happy. Really, I hope that works for you. Fully and finally happy. They satisfy every need of your soul. Oh, do they? Who in the world do you have? They must be amazing. So sometimes it's a person. Uh, People get married thinking, oh my goodness, finally I'll be happy. Those who are married a while say, well, good. I hope you're happy. You will be. I mean, I'm sure. But you might have to work at this just a little bit. And you might have to come to that stark realization that whoever this person is isn't your savior. They're flawed too, just like you. Huh. Where do, what do we seek to give life? Sometimes it's in good things that become ultimate things. You know what I mean by that? Save for retirement. Do it. Have a 401k. But let me tell you something. However big that 401k gets or when the bubble bumps a little bit down, that isn't your life. Okay? No matter how much money you collect, how many cool houses you have, whatever you got, that'll never and fully and finally satisfy your soul. Because as Augustine said, right, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only God will fill. So people seek life. People seek saviors. Now, in the middle of chapter 30, verses 18 and 19, just look at this. These are remarkable. Right in the middle of this section on judgment, I mentioned the back and forth that is characterized by all these six chapters do this. But here is one of those back and forth. Therefore, you read, right in the middle of this judgment, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you, and on it goes. Certainly, a, again, a future fulfillment in the ultimate sense. But even now, even now, the Lord waits to be gracious. I love the way the graciousness of God and his mercy are set together with God as a God of justice. Those are companions. Both of them give great hope. And I I put here in your study notes, one writer calls chapter 30, verse 18, one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture. Can you imagine? That's quite a statement. There's a lot of cool statements in all of Scripture. And this writer, one who studied the book a bit, says one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture. Here it is. The creator of the universe patiently standing, waiting for us. Waiting. Waiting. And they're not turning back right now. They're waiting They're waiting. I I think of a lot of our waitings. We often are waiting for things to change. Um, We have a group that meets um, uh, right now virtually. It's a group of moms who are waiting for some kids. Yeah. 
So they, in that sense, are, are mirroring the heart of God. The Lord waits to be patient to, or to be gracious to you, waiting till you turn. This group of moms waiting, waiting for kids to, to return. And I love the end of verse 19. Uh, at the sound of your cry, he's waiting to be gracious to you. At the sound of your cry, as soon as he hears it, he'll answer you. That's, that's God speaking to us. Cry out to me, do it. And he answers you. I, I, I know something of this in my own life, as many of you do too. How many times are there circumstances where you don't have a lot of cool words and all you have is, oh God, please, please, please help just now, please, please come. That's all you got. No big $5 words. They just don't work that day. Oh God, please help me, please. I have verses 18 and 19 typed up and taped on my computer screen. I came across them several years ago reading Isaiah, and I thought, wow, those are really cool verses. And they're not usually on people's memory verse lists. So I'm going I'm to I'm going to put those, they're still there if you stop by my office. They're still there on the bottom right-hand corner, Isaiah 30, 18 and 19, because I forget. I forget, just like you do. I need to be reminded that God is eager to be gracious. He's a God of justice. At the sound of my cry, he answers. Lord, thank you for that. I want to go to chapters 31 and 30, uh, 32 and 33, rather, uh, quickly, and uh, we'll head toward our time here, moving over a couple of things. Judgment begins with God's people. Yes, indeed. Sometimes God's people seek other saviors, as do we. In 32 and 33, I'm just pointing out very quickly, God never takes his eye off of his ultimate deliverance. And I'm just calling out here five, five statements that rise from the text. So I read 32, 1 and 2. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the, the shade or the shadow, either one, of a, dry, of a great rock in a weary land. And right away I'll say, boy, streams in the desert. Some of you have that. I think that's Oswald Chambers, right? What if he read Isaiah? The answer is yes, I think he did. Some of you know the old hymn, uh, Jesus is the rock in a weary land. Indeed, do you think they read the book of Isaiah? I'm telling you, if you if you know older hymnody, you'll be quickly aware of how many of those folks who wrote songs had read the book of Isaiah, and they use a phrase. So as you read Isaiah, you say, why is that familiar? Could be that you learned a song about that a couple of years ago. Jesus is the rock in the weary land. But I mentioned to you here, a king will reign in righteousness. Yes, he will. This is looking ahead to King Jesus, ultimately. There'll be, a, there'll be a greater king one day. There will be. Today's rulers, today's kings, yeah, we got problems. There's coming a greater king, the Bible says over and over again. Jesus, in his return, a king will reign in righteousness. Shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Earlier on, I mentioned it here, um, chapter 30, verse 3, I mentioned it in reading it. Uh, some people were finding shade, finding shelter from Egypt. And this, the analogy here is a hot place where the sun is beating down. And to survive, you need shade. And it, is very, it makes a lot of sense if you're in a desert area, an arid area. Where do you find shade to live? Well, are you going to run to Egypt? Is that it? Is that where you're going to find shade? Or are you going to come to God, the God of the Bible, and find shelter, shade? For, it's life-saving 
So those are terms that Isaiah uses that make a lot of sense, more so in that day. Woe to you, O destroyer, chapter 33. This is a word to Assyria, the Assyrian army. You think you're big stuff now? And God says, I'll take you down. The thing bullying you today, that problem, God is very capable of dealing with it, whatever that is. God is very capable of dealing with it. Woe to you, O destroyer, a longing for true justice. Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. We wait for you. We wait for you. And then finally, I just mentioned to you verse 17 in chapter 33. Again, all of these looking. God is, God is pointing out his ultimate deliverance. Verse 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. And for that as well, you'll remember a song, some of you. Um, I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight. Old hymn comes right out of Isaiah 33. 17. Okay, I want to just bring all that down to that section called response. This, these, these six chapters are about God's people, the Assyrians coming, and again, we don't have those exactly, but we have other problems. God's people seeking life and meaning and purpose elsewhere. For them, it involved misusing alcohol. They're trying to find life, and it didn't do it. Tables were filled with vomit. Are you having fun now? Is this working for you? Wow, God's people were seeking satisfaction and joy in all the wrong places. Run into Assyria when they got problems. Sorry, running to Egypt when they had problems with Assyria. Where do you seek? Where do you go for help? Where do you go? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Who do you run to? Wow. And I love it here. At the sound of your cry, he answers you. At the sound of your cry, he answers you. So I, I, you know, today, I just would love to have you think about some things. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to hand off to Pastor Ben, as I mentioned, and he'll lead you through communion. But I, I just would like you to think about these things. All of us uh, long for certain things, and in our seeking of life and fulfillment and joy, sometimes we go at all the wrong places, things that can never satisfy. And then it bites us, and we don't know why. Well, maybe something good for you has become an ultimate thing. Maybe God wants to remind you of that today. If there's ever a place where you should go to remember the mercy of God, it's to Jesus at the cross. That's why remembering Christ in communion is so good today because he is the ultimate answer to the human heart. He is the one who is our savior. He is the only one who can satisfy the longings of our hearts. We long for things that will never satisfy. Only Christ, only Christ. I want to pray for us. Would you join me in that? Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, We count on the Spirit of God to help us and to make your word just penetrate our hearts. So do that today, I pray, through your word and even now as we focus on Christ for these next couple of moments in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Ben. Thanks, Pastor Jay. Communion is a special opportunity for us to remember Christ. And he gave us special instructions for that and how to do it. We practice that according to the tradition of some 2,000 years as he instructed us to. 
And so if you do know Christ as your Savior, we invite you to participate in the way we're currently doing that at Sunset Bible Church is through these three tables, ask you to come forward and to receive the elements. And your instructions for that are to come forward along the outside aisles and the center aisle here and use these other two to return to your seats. So outside, center aisle forward, come and receive the elements. And then I'll say some more words and we'll remember him together. struck, uh, I hope along with you, the juxtaposition, the combining here of God's judgment and also his mercy at the same time. So I want to read uh, verse 18, which Jay referred to. One guy said is one of the most powerful verses in all of scripture. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And of course, we see no greater picture of God's grace, his mercy, but also his justice on the cross where Christ, his body, broken for us. This, this little cracker reminds us of that body broken for us. Let's remember him together. Likewise, the blood shed for us. Let's remember him together. I'll invite you to stand and pray with me as we close. Heavenly Father, no matter what's going on in all of our lives, we remember that you are good, gracious, and yes, just. And we remember all those things in remembering Jesus today. We thank you for his great sacrifice, his substitute on our behalf, enduring the consequences for our actions. Jesus bore that. He bore our sin and our shame in his body. We thank you so much for the shed blood of Christ that gives us hope of not just freedom from the penalty of sin, but one day freedom from the presence of sin altogether. How we long for that, Lord. Be with us as we go. Help us to share this good news with those we know that don't know you. And we need your help for that. So we do ask that you be with us and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.